Welcome to SOAS Radio. We are delighted this afternoon to have two professors from the famous Otto Zur Institute at the Free University of Berlin here to speak, Professor Tanya Borzell and Professor Thomas Riesa. Uh, Professor Borzell is Professor of Political Science and you hold the Chair for European Integration at the Free University of Berlin. Professor Thomas Riesa holds the Chair for the Center for Transnational Relations at the Free University of Berlin. It's wonderful to have you here. Both of your works are very well known to our students and to our, our colleagues, not only here at SOAS, but, but far beyond across London and across the United Kingdom. Um, you're here to speak about a project that you've both had extensive involvement with, as have another of our other colleagues, actually, who've come to visit SOAS, on areas of limited statehood effective and legitimate in areas of limited statehood, I believe is the title of the talk that you're giving later this afternoon. But before we discuss that, I wanted to to ask you a little bit about the history of the Autozor Institute. It's quite famous and it's quite distinctive in a way that I think we like to think so as is distinct, um, <laughs> but perhaps in a different way. So could you tell us, uh, Professor Brazell, a little bit about the history of the Autozor Institute? Oh, yes, it's a pleasure. The Otto Institute was founded, obviously, after the Second World War, right? And part of its history has been educating Germans about democracy. This is where it came from. And then it developed into the largest political science department in in West Germany. We There was a time when we were more than 50 professors. So it was really large. Then uh, with unification in the 90s and Berlin being reunited too, with three universities and a state that essentially broke, we had to downsize quite considerably. We currently at 13.5 professors, uh, which still makes us one of the largest political science departments in Germany. And what we are famous for, I believe, is 1968. The student revolution started at the Otto Zoo Institute. Rudi Dutschke was, you know, leader of the, the German student movement, was a student of the Otto Zoo Institute. So we used to be quite, how shall I put it, on the left, you know, on the forefront of the left movement, Germany. By now, I think the Otto, it's fair to say that the Otto Suh Institute is one of the top German political science departments in terms of publications and research. So we've moved away a little bit from our original mission of educating people about democracy towards doing research. And your students are drawn primarily from Germany or do they come from far beyond? We have a very international student body and that has partly partly to do with the fact that Freie Universität as one of the excellent universities in Germany has a strong emphasis on internationalization. So we have all, we have three master programs Sciences Po. So we have dual degrees. We have dual degrees with some American universities, with a Russian university. And of course, we very high in demand for Erasmus students who love to spend some time in Berlin. So I think we have a pretty mixed student body. If we have a master program in international relations that we have together with the uh, Humboldt University in, in, in Berlin, but also the University of Potsdam. So, I mean, we are not as international as SOAS. That's yet. hard to beat. Hard to beat. No, that's very hard to beat. <laughs> but uh, among German universities, I think we are among the most international. And, and you have to understand uh, in order to uh, to go to a German university, you have to understand German. Right, you know, of course. So, so that's a, there's a language problem With here. 20% of our no. classes are taught in English. English. At least that's the, in theory, <laughs> but still. Now, the project that you are, that your talk this evening comes out of, grows out of, is on areas of limited statehood. And, and I'm guessing that this draws on a very diverse and large number of students and academics. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that broader project? Sure. Uh, it's, it's called a, a collaborative research center. Uh, it's funded by the German Research Foundation. 
for a time period of altogether 12 years. So uh, in between, I mean, there are always evaluations. I mean, you don't get millions of euros <laughs> just for 12 years. But um, so it allows us to really uh, go deep into a particular research program and research question. So, so our, um, our point of departure is what we call areas of limited statehood. Uh, so so our, our starting point is, to put it in one sentence, the world is not Denmark and it's not going to be Denmark. So the, the, the default in the international systems are countries with areas of limited statehood where the, where the state institutions are weak, where they are not uh, suitable or uh, too weak to enforce central decisions. In some cases, they even lost the, the, the monopoly over the means of violence. So if that is the default, then the question becomes who governs there? How is governance being done? Who profits? So we ask this essentially the normal political science questions, but under the assumptions that you have a weak state. And yeah. so, of course, w when you read the popular media and press, one thinks of these areas as being highly anarchic, full of chaos, um, broken, and the hotbed for terrorism. Is that what you found? No. <laughs> I'm guessing not. <laughs> no, the answer is not. What we find, I mean, first of all, areas of limited statehood are not ungoverned spaces. So this anarchy assumption, chaos, etc., is is nonsense. Somebody always governs. I mean, some in some cases, yes, it's really the bad guys, like, you know, Islamic State or so. Uh, but in most cases, what you have is all kinds of actors. Sometimes state actors, non-state actors, international organizations, aid agencies, etc. And what the, the major finding is there's huge variation. You know, you have some places. Let's talk about Somalia. I mean, Som Somalia is the quintessential failed state, is a failed state for the last, what, 25 years? So no central government, or if there's a central government, it controls maybe Mogadishu, but that's not even uh, sure. If you go in some of the provinces of, um, uh, of Somali, uh, Somalia, for example, Somaliland, Puntland, etc., you find actually they're pretty well governed. In, some ca in uh, so the, the, the province of Somaliland, one could al almost uh, call it uh, a quasi-state by now. But you what know? do you, I mean, how do you explain this when you, when you take some of your findings and try to, to, to relay them to European governments and European officials? Surely, Professor Brazel, they think, well, that's all well and good, but we need to have a state. We need to have legitimacy. We need to have effective rule. Need, we need to have partners that we can deal with. I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, you know, I have a, I'm a professor for European Union politics and European integration, so you may well ask, what do I have to do with areas of limited setup? I couldn't convince Professor Risser that the European Union is an area of limited setup because by definition, <laughs> the EU, it's, EU is not a state, right? It lacks a monopoly over the use of violence and uh, it's cap it, it completely depends on its member states for the enforcement of its decisions. So in a way, it is an area of limited statehood. So what we're trying to do, and here is a parallel to the EU, we're trying to explain policy politics or governments, more broadly speaking, without the state, or actually we asking how much of a state you actually need to govern effectively and legitimately. But do you have any areas within Europe that are part of your study? No, 
But we, they could be studied. Look at parts of Greece, right? I mean, or even, I mean, Thomas always likes to use the example of Neukölln, which is a borough of Berlin, right? Where the police is just not there to enforce certain laws. So this is the, the, the added value of areas of limited state. We don't talk about failed or failing states. We talk about areas within states where the state is too weak to govern. And then we ask... Who else is governing? And that's an empirical question. We find that a lot of different actors that are willing and capable of providing collective goods and services if the state is not there. And that's and we try to identify conditions under which these actors get involved and provide governance effectively and legitimately. On this question of legitimacy, okay. it's very interesting, of mm -hmm. course, because we hear frequently, you know, debates and discussions about what well, Hamas provides mm -hmm. services mm -hmm. and Islamic State mm -hmm. provides services. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of contention about, you know, legitimacy. So how do you how do you deal with that question of legitimacy? I mean, that's actually one of the major findings. Uh, effective governance in areas of limited statehood is pretty much only possible if the governors, if you want, have some sort of legitimacy on the ground defined, you can say, as the license to govern. So if the people do not accept them, They can jump up and down, but then they're not effective. We find that as a, almost a necessary condition is, for governance under these circumstances. Is consent part of that? Consent by the people? Acceptance, I would say. Social acceptance. Social acceptance. In the long run. I mean, and that, uh, there's a parallel to the state too. A state might have the monopoly of the use of violence, but a state that only depends on, you know, ruling and governing by relying on, on violence is not going to be effective in the long run. And that's very similar to what we find. It also applies to non-state actors. If non-state actors engage in governance, they have to have some acceptance by the people they claim to govern. And is there a prescriptive element to this? Yes, there is. In fact, uh, since you asked about, uh, you know, our government or our governments, Western governments actually always engaging in state building, uh, we currently engaged in a very exciting project together with the German Foreign Office. So we have actually three PhD stu uh, students sitting in the foreign office in the unit that deals with fragile states. So we weren't able to, uh, to convince German foreign policy that they should get rid of that term fragile states, which I hate, but for different reasons. But nevertheless, um, there's a situation where I think the German government has realized that these huge state building efforts And the Germans were very much engaged uh, in Afghanistan, for example, that that has largely failed. So there's a, there's a huge uncertainty. So we try to convince them that, yes, the state is important and as a German diplomat. And I, I'm sure that's the same in Britain. <laughs> you know, you deal with states, you know, but that they have to look for non-state actors with whom they can work. I'm not talking about IS. That's not the issue. But to really look uh, who are the actual governance, governors in these areas and, and, and which actors have actually a, some sort of legitimacy so that German agencies, etc., can, can, can work uh, with them. It takes them uh, some time, it took us some time <laughs> to get them out of their completely state-centric uh, worldview. But I think there is there's a huge realization that the 
um, that the policies of the 19, uh, 1990s and early 2000s simply have failed. So there's, there's a sense when, when one listens at least to the title of your project that governance and, and perhaps, you know, when the German government thinks about who can we deal with outside of states might come down to, you know, functionalism, what's provided and what's provided effectively. But frequently when we think about the standards for participation in the international community, we think about complying with international law, we think about behaving in a particular type of way we think about delivering services equitably across genders um, and a whole set of standards that as you know very well from your own publications and writing over many decades are far beyond just sort of functional provision of exactly. basic needs. So how does that factor in? Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think it's important to distinguish between the provision of collective goods and services and the setting up of institutions to provide these collective goods and services. And our research clearly shows that the provision of collective goods and services, security, public health, education, can be done by non-state actors. But in order to make this sustainable, right, in the long term, and uh, also legitimate, we run into two problems, at least. One, a lot of non-state actors do not want to provide governance for a longer period of time because they still think it's the state's job to do that. Two, the people who are governed very often still expect states. You go to Greece and even, for instance, this is one area I know best, even though it's not part of the of our center. You know, people are frustrated with the state and very often it's not the state that delivers the goods and services, but in the long run, they want the help from outside to build up a state that is then capable. So these are, these are we still have the expectation that, you know, sooner or later the state takes over. What so is it about the state? Arguably, I mean, if you take the ideal type, if you look at ways to 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 of political to, um, to provide order, right, a political order, I think the state is still a very successful model. The problem is, and that's what Thomas already said, to build a state from the outside is extremely difficult. Even if you succeed in setting up effective institutions, very often you end up strengthening repressive, corrupt regimes. So what you need to build is democratic states with the rule of law. I, w I would still maintain this is, is, is still the best way to organize politics. But since it's so difficult to build this, you have to think about alternatives. And I think this is where we have to, to start working on. And again, it's not so, so easy when you think about the more institutionalized provision of collective goods and services, which is not only effective, but also legitimate in terms of participation and equal distribution of these goods and services. So the, does the state become necessary for representation externally? I mean, in a way, it still is. Right. I mean, we talked. I just talked about Somalia. S Somalia is still an internationally recognized state, and there's nobody else who can represent the state of Somalia other than this, not even a government, <laughs> but these people who claim that they are uh, the Somali government. In that sense, international recognition is still um, uh, wedded to the state, and we are not an anti-state argument. But I, I think our 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 point is. We need to live with the reality that most states are weak and have weak institutions and these weak institutions are not going to go away. So they, if they want to govern, they have to govern with, uh, together with others. And then the question is, under which conditions can that be effective, legitimate, etc., etc. Uh, if you want, it's an argument against modernization theory. 
you know, where all things, all good things go together. It starts with economic growth and then you are on your elevator and then eventually you're Denmark, right? This is not our point. We say, no, Denmark is is fine. I'm, I'm not, I have nothing against Denmark. <laughs> Recognizing that most people would like to live in, in Denmark, Denmark. That's but the point the is what you do when you can't get Denmark, right? You have right. to find other ways of provide effective and legitimate. Uh, you governance. said something, Professor Borzell, which I thought was very interesting that alluded to the fact that there are contests. This isn't just, again, it's not just about provision of services and, and a search for um, functionality, mm. but there's, there are contests amongst these groups who would mm -hmm. like to provide services. Mm -hmm. So presumably in your research, you found that even in areas, or maybe especially in areas of limited statehood, that there must be a lot of struggle for power amongst non-state sure. actors over who gets to sure. who gets to provide basic well again the two sides of it right i mean these non-state actors very often if you look at what the kind of goods they provide it's very often club goods rather than public goods and that that raises the issue who is sort of the relevant what we call the governance collective you provide collective goods and services for whom exactly and very often you find that certain groups are excluded and it's not always the fault of the non-state actors mostly business so companies or uh, non-governmental organizations. It also has something to do with the states. They might be weak and even sometimes not present, but there is always some capacity left. And these states often use then their capacity to extract rent. So they, you have to, you know, if a multinational company wants to provide security or education for the community in which its production site is located, it has to make a deal with the local security forces, right? And very often they want their shares. So that is th that's the other side. Building, again, building states very often ends up building capacities of actors that, that whose primary interest is not necessarily providing collective goods and services. And that that is that applies to both state and non-state actors. So you have to provide structures of accountability, mm. right, to make sure that these actors, be them their state or non-state, actually provide public goods, truly public goods, in a legitimate way, in an equal way. And we can talk about gender, but we can also talk about ethnicity, about religion. Maybe is again very often you get club goods for a certain ethnicity, for a certain um, a religious group. But public goods are accessible for everybody, and that is, I think, the key challenge. And have you had, I know we're going to walk you to the next room where you have an audience waiting to hear from you on this that extends far beyond the radio studio here at, so, at SOAS Radio. But how do you imagine taking this project? How do you close it? How do you, have, you, have you taken it to America? Surely you must get very difficult <laughs> and contentious reactions from Americans who might not be as receptive to all these alternative ways of thinking about organization. But what, okay, what are I the mean, conclusions? Is, I mean, or what in, is the, okay, they... Yes, I mean, a lot of political scientists uh, in the Western world are pretty state-centered. Uh, in Germany, sometimes we are accused of pursuing a neoliberal agenda as if we want to have the, the, the state out of governance, which uh, is, is really not our... Uh, we don't care about that <laughs> <It's an laughs> at all. Question, it's yes. an empirical question. Uh, but, I mean, we do want to, to, uh, to point out, and, and I, I think Tanya just uh, made that point, that in many cases the state is part of the problem and not uh, not mm. part of the solution. Mm -hmm. So that is uh, the if one you point. have and these the other point is clientelistic exactly. or predator, uh, predatory states, states exactly. that in fact in some cases it's better if the state keeps out. The examples, um, um, what's her name? Um, uh, one of our, actually an American uh, collaborator, 
has shown in the in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in those areas where the state couldn't get, actually you had non-state justice systems that were actually able to provide justice, particular for poor people and particular for women, yes. poor right. women. And it's, it yeah. is a very well-known project. That is Millie Lake, so by the way. That's that, her yes. name. Millie Lake, Lake is her name, yes. yes. No, and if I just scholar. may add to that, what we also want to advance is as Thomas already said, our theories and concepts are so wedded to the state, both empirically and normatively, thinking politics without the state is so hard. And I think that's a lot of the resistance we run into is not so much the empirical claims we're making. It's more the resistance against thinking outside the box. You know, I mean, the state is always the end point of our normative and theoretical thinking. And I think the governance concept provides at least a way to make that an empirical question, but it's still very hard to get by the state centrism of our political science concepts and that also applies to international relations scholars by the way it's it's important it's relevant it's certainly timely and i think it will be of great interest to those of our student body who love to protest against the state maybe that's another project how do you protest <laughs> against areas of limited state. of governance and limited statehood thank you uh, professor brazel thank it's you professor pleasure. risa for thank joining you. us at soas and at uh, soas radio this afternoon